So good evening. We made it. Uh, Rabbi Weinstock definitely gets an assist for his heroic help in just showing me how to get through the codes of the photocopier, and we, we pulled it all off, so, so he deserves full thanks. Uh, we're up to the book of Isaiah, the Sefer Yeshayahu, which is the very first book where there isn't much of a story. I actually have many, many, many students over the years from Yeshiva University who come to me, you know, there's like the gold star question you get when you come to me, right, which is... You know, I really would love to go through the whole Bible. What do you recommend? So I tell them, well, here's the plan. You're going to start with the book of Joshua, and you're going to go. And you're going to have a great time. I mean, a lot of blood and guts and gore and violence, but all the same. It's a riveting narrative. If you get to chapter 10 of Isaiah, and you're still going, you'll finish. Right? Because at that point, you're, you're going to hit that wall, and either you're going to say, I can do this, and you'll then, okay, it's all, it's, you'll make it, or you won't, you'll, you'll be like, oh my goodness, there are hundreds of chapters without stories, what am I going to do? And then that'll be that, and you will despair. And, and some people actually have made it through, although I would say that many of them, many of them don't. It's very, very daunting reading the book of Isaiah. If, you try, if you've ever tried to do it, even in English, but, but certainly in the Hebrew. The Hebrew's hard, there's a lot of poetry, and there's a lot of what seems to be repetition. And then you get to the book of Jeremiah, and there's more of the same, except it's even sadder still. Ezekiel, really miserable first half, really awesome second half. Twelve prophets, which are a conglomeration of twelve prophets. You have hundreds of chapters with... Well, here's the plot of all of this. Ready? Here's a good survey course situation. All right. Dear name of nation, typically Israel, but sometimes other nations too. You have done X things wrong. Sometimes specific sins, sometimes generic evil. Sometimes there is a consequence associated with that. Sometimes there's an option to repent, and that you might either avoid or at least tone down the level of punishment. At some future point, either predicated on repentance or not, depending on the passage that we're talking about, the messianic redemption will come. And if you try to duck out of a divine command and run in the other direction, you may get swallowed by a whale. The end. Right? And that's about it. I just covered hundreds of chapters for you, so now we have plenty of time to do other things. Right? I I think one of the reasons why most people fall short, actually, with Isaiah and on is because they lose sight of what the story is. It's actually only in the 19th and 20th century that scholars, on a systematic level, began to realize that if you understand a little bit about the historical context, you realize, wait a minute... This isn't just a bunch of disembodied prophecies about the future or about the present of that time. These prophets are real people who lived in real places at real times and talked to real kings and real noblemen and real people in the marketplace. And once you get a handle on the circumstances, they become living, breathing books, and actually I find them the most exciting of them all. Right? You don't have the surface story. If you just try to scan them and pick up what it's about, you'll get almost nothing out of it. As opposed to if you read the book of Samuel, you can flip through it in an afternoon and you still had a good read, right? Not Isaiah. You're not going to have a good read if you just flip through it in an afternoon. But if you study the context, you actually gain a lot out of it. I wanted to just give you this primary Talmudic source. The Talmud told us to order our Bibles differently from the way that we commonly do, which is really interesting, actually. Our rabbis taught in source number one. The order of the prophets is... Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. That's what we've been doing up until now. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the 12 minor prophets. Okay, what's our order? In most of our printed Tanakhs. Isaiah first. 
Isaiah comes first, then Jeremiah, then Ezekiel, then the twelve prophets. The Talmud isn't following. Isaiah came first. He came before Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Isaiah was in the 8th century BCE, Jeremiah toward the end of the 7th, and Ezekiel squarely in the 6th. But the Talmud isn't thinking chronologically. It's thinking thematically. Actually, the best way to think about this is, I never actually, I think, since I was a very little boy, played the game of dominoes. But the Talmud is actually thinking in terms of the game of dominoes here, in terms of thematic organization of the Bible. So they ask the question. They say, let us see again. Isaiah was prior to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We know our chronology too. Don't think that we sages don't know historical circumstances. So why then why should not Isaiah be placed first? Because the book of Kings ends with a record of destruction. The book of Kings, the climax is the destruction of the temple. Okay, so that's what's on that domino, destruction. Okay, so now you need another domino with some destruction. That's easy. Jeremiah speaks throughout of destruction. Okay, so he's a domino with two destructions on it. Okay, so you can put one domino touching the kings, and now there's still another destruction. So now we need somebody else to attach to him with destruction on that domino, right? Ezekiel commences with destruction and ends with consolation. Okay, that's good. The Ezekiel domino is one side destruction and one side consolation. So you put the destruction side next to the Jeremiah thing. Okay, now there's an open consolation domino spot. All right. Right, so now we need Isaiah, right? And Isaiah is all consolation. Okay, so his domino is the best of them all. Man, I wish I would get that one in the game, right? Where it's consolation, consolation. So you could attach him to the good side of Ezekiel. Voila. Therefore, we put destruction next to the destruction and consolation next to consolation. What I find fabulous about this is at least two things. And that's, those are the two I'm going to stick with for today. One is that we ignore that order. Right, our Masoretic text, which was put together in Israel in the 8th and 9th centuries CE follows the chronological order. We have Isaiah, then Jeremiah, then Ezekiel. In other words, what they said, well, why don't we do that? Our answer is, well, actually, we do. We have not followed the Talmudic ruling on this one. We have followed the, the, Israelite, the Israel tradition from Tiberia, from Tiberias, the Masoretes, who really put together the most accurate text of Tanakh in the world based on comparative studies and manuscripts back then. We follow their order, which is the historical order. So that's just a curiosity of our Bibles. What we also have... Kenny, I'm sorry to trouble you. Can I just ask you to go to the photocopier and pick up the rest of the... Or somebody already did? Oh, we got them. You're the best. All right, so now we can give them, and we're all good. Thank you so much. Because as people come in, we can give them we can give them pages. All right. I think I made enough for everybody anticipated, but it just, it's a slow machine, so we, we did it in shifts. In the meantime, that all being said, the more fascinating part is how the Talmud characterizes the book of Isaiah as all consolation. Not only is it not all consolation, I haven't done an accurate verse-by-verse survey, but there's no way it's anywhere near 50% consolation. It's not even close. There's a lot of very harsh gloom and doom stuff over here, too. There is plenty of consolation. In fact, there's more consolation in this book than any other one. I think that if you ask members of the public who are synagogue goers who have never studied this book, they will agree with that assessment. Why? Because of the Haftarot. There are so many Haftarot that we read from the book of Isaiah, and almost all of them are prophecies of consolation, including, as Miriam just said, seven in a row after Tisha B'Av. We call them Shivad Nechemta, the seven Haftarot of consolation. They're all from the book of Isaiah. And they're all very happy prophecies. That's why they're there. They're to cheer us up after the gloomy period. But there's plenty of harsh gloom and doom stuff also. But I'm hoping to be able to pull this off in just three sessions. In fact, 
I'm going to pull it off in three sessions, because then we're up to Jeremiah, so too bad on me. In three sessions, we're going to actually see how this characterization is true, that in fact the book of Isaiah is all consolation, not because every single word in it is very warm and fuzzy. Some of it is incredibly icy and harsh and terrible. And at the same time, it's also a lot due. We're going to see that both sides of this coin actually are very critical for understanding what the book of Isaiah did or does. I gave you an outline on the back page of the source sheets, as I like to do at the first session of each book. The first 12 chapters, this makes, it's a gigantic book. It's not as big as the book of Jeremiah. That's even bigger still, even though there are more chapters in the book of Isaiah. But who cares about chapters? What matters is verses. There are more verses in the book of Jeremiah by significant amount. But what matters is that the first 12 chapters are the kicker. If you master them, and then you take tours through the rest of the book, you actually are doing pretty well. Chapters 1 through 12 contain the essence of Isaiah's prophecies, at least the way I think about it. And since I made this outline, I'm entitled to write that. Right? That's, that's, really the core, that's really the core of what it's all about. Chapters 13 through 23 are a series of prophecies primarily against other nations and how they too are going to be doomed for their assorted evils, arrogance, wickedness, etc. By the way, everybody's getting doomed by the same nation, and we'll talk about them a lot. Because I have, I have a visceral dislike, as in severe hatred, of the Assyrian Empire. I mean, it's been gone for 2,700 years, but in my world, it's alive and well, right? It's here all the time. Huh? Yeah, no, 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 but that's different. That's not the Assyrian Empire. There are other evil nations today, no question about that. But uh, the Assyrians are alive and well, because if you, if you live in the book of Isaiah or the book of Amos, right? Well, the Assyrians are the problem. They're not just the problem. You should understand, we still suffer because of them. Sometimes we don't even appreciate that. You know, the ten lost tribes that we still long for, they were lost thanks to them. The Assyrians actually destroyed a greater percentage of the Jewish population than any nation in history by exiling the ten lost tribes, which are still lost 2,700 years later. And they devastated quite an enormous percentage of the southern kingdom. Right? They actually defeated, I would say, 80 to 90% of the Jewish people, either by killing them or by exiling them and having them assimilate into oblivion. So that's a, pretty, that's a pretty staggering feat. They were a mighty, mighty, mighty empire. In fact, their one lost record during their six great emperors were whatever number of wins they had, which was a very big number, and one. There was only one battle that they couldn't win. Only one. Which one? I'll tell you. In fact, it's a very important one. It was the battle against Jerusalem in 701 BCE. They besieged Jerusalem. Boy, oh boy, were we frightened. Who wouldn't be? But amazingly, they did not conquer Jerusalem. That was a miracle of epic proportion, and Tanakh celebrates it to the high heavens. His divine intervention saves the day. And so we'll talk about that, hopefully, in a couple of weeks. But that's who's getting doomed in all of these chapters. The Assyrians are rolling in, and they're going to conquer the world. And so that includes us. We're part of that world, and we're the most important, you know, we're the lion's share of Isaiah's prophecies. And then there's a whole series of chapters against other nations, too. Then in chapters 24 through 27, there are redemption prophecies. There are plenty of redemption prophecies in this book. The wicked will finally be destroyed. There will be ultimate justice and the righteous will be spared. Then in chapters 28 through 33, there are primarily more rebukes, primarily during the reign of Hezekiah or Hezekiah. And then you have more redemption after that in 34, 35. Then you actually have four chapters of narrative, which are the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. And they're actually... a Virtual a copy of what you find in the book of Kings. It's that narrative of King Hezekiah 
It's here almost verbatim. There are always variants. There are variants here too. But it's pretty much the same thing. And then you have these 27 very happy chapters at the end. They're not really all consolations, but the lion's share of this section really is. So it's rightly referred to as Nechamot Yeshaya, or the consolations pertaining to the return to Zion period. There are many rebukes as well. I couldn't help myself. I threw it in there for the sake of accuracy. But, but there's primarily consolation. All those haftarot that we read in the summertime are all from this section, the final section of the book, which is where there's an enormous amount of, of, of consolation. So that's all good. But there's not going to be a lot of consolation tonight, all right? So I'll mention some consolations as they go through. Tonight our job is the first six chapters. Next week we'll deal with the next six chapters, and then we'll have, if you read the outline well, the essence of the book, because we'll have done chapters 1 through 12. And then we'll have one more session on 36 through 39 and how the whole book comes together. And that'll, that'll cheer us up a little bit more up until then. The sages already realized, well, first let's read verse 1 of the book. In source 2 now we're up to. The prophecies of Isaiah, son of Amos, who prophesied concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the reigns of Uziah, Yotam, Machaz, and Chizkiah, kings of Judah. What does this verse presume? This is dating the prophet Isaiah. He was a prophet during these four kings' reigns. What does this verse presume before you read verse 2? It presumes that you know what happened during these reigns. It's not going to review that for you. You need to know the book of Kings. Otherwise, this is what we call in college, it's a prerequisite, right? This verse is telling you, prerequisite before reading any further is you need some background. Okay, so that's, that's what tonight is going to be. We covered some of this material in the survey last week, but, but only some. It's time to really do it better. But first we'll look at sources three and four just to get a sense of how serious this issue is regarding historical context to understand the prophecy as a three-dimensional figure. The Talmud says, in source three, you know, they ask the question, well, how did things in the Bible become the Bible? Like, what made Tanakh Tanakh? How did we decide, we, not us, but what the earliest ages of all, how did they decide what goes in and what goes out? So they answer in source three, only the prophecy which contained a lesson for future generations was written down, and that which did not contain such a lesson was not written. Okay, it's not just a scrapbook of all available poetry and history and prophecy from that period. In fact, Tanakh, it's really cool, has a lot of footnotes. They don't put them in the, you know, below the text like we do today, but they have actual footnotes. If you want to read more about this, go look in your library for so-and-so book, which is not in Tanakh. Megillah Esther does that. You want more information? Go check the Persian Chronicles. Right? That's a footnote. It's telling you, look, this isn't everything from that period. But we have what is prophetically relevant. That's what's going to be eternal. And then if you want more historical background, go to your local library and take something out. Unfortunately, we don't have access to any of these books. I can't tell you how much I would love to see them because that would give you a very good sense of what the prophets chose to select how they told it, and what they chose to omit. It would actually be incredibly helpful. Next May or so, when we get to the book of Chronicles, I'm going to go crazy on this point, because that's the one example from within Tanakh itself where we can actually go through that exercise. So they're, in, they're verses. They're verses that say, if you want more information, go to, a, go to such and such book. In Megillah Sarah, the second to last verse says, if you want more information, go to the Persian Chronicles. In the in, no, in the book of Esther. Who decided what oh, was written yeah, down? Hmm? Who decided what was written down? 
Who decided what was written down? The prophets. The prophets, the prophets decided what would be written down, but somebody had to decide what's included. In other words, other people wrote things during the biblical period. Why are they not in the Bible? The answer is they're not Bible worthy. Okay? So Rashi then modifies this point in source four. Torah and Moshe is called Torah because it was given for all generations. The prophets are called only Kabbalah. That doesn't mean the way we use the term today in terms of mysticism, right? Kabbalah means received tradition. That's how we classically use that term. It has morphed into the the world of the mystical. That's not what he's talking about at all. The prophets are only called Kabbalah, or called only Kabbalah, since they received each prophecy through divine inspiration for the needs of their time and generation. Rashi is not disagreeing with this Talmudic passage in Source 3. What he's saying is, if I can paraphrase him a little bit, if you ask God, who revealed the Torah, who is your primary audience? Who are you writing this to when you're speaking in the Torah right now? What would God answer? We know the answer to this question, believe it or not. Moshe, the people of Israel, for all time. God did not reveal the Torah to Moshe and the people who happened to be there just for them. It was an eternally binding covenant from the get-go. That's why the Torah was given. And that's what God would answer. My primary intent is to give this as an eternally relevant and binding covenant to all generations of Jews. Even though he would never would have used the term Jews back then because we still would have used the term Israelites. But okay. That all being said, if you ask Isaiah... Who is your primary intended audience? He would say, the people I'm talking to. Not, not us. I'm talking to 8th century BCE Judeans. He wouldn't have used that date, right? But okay. But that's who he's talking to. He's talking to the kingdom of Judah in a particular time. And he's talking to real kings and real people in the Shuk. That's who his primary audience is. So it's, it behooves us to understand something about that primary audience and what they were thinking about to the best that we can reconstruct from within Tanakh and now from within other archaeological sources that we have available. Why, the reason why it was included in Tanakh is because it's also relevant to all generations. It's still relevant to us. That's why we're doing all of these things, right? And it's not just, we're not just looking into a, a window 2,800 years ago. We're interested in How does it speak to us? But you can't understand how it speaks to us until you understand what Isaiah was trying to tell his original audience. Okay, and this brings us to the very beginning of the book of Isaiah. But we're not going to talk about that yet, because I have to tell you the prerequisites. (laughs) Right? We're about to read text, but we're not allowed to. The book told you in verse 1, we need to talk about Uziah, Yotam, Achaz, and Chizkiah. So I'm going to give you a very quick, it's quicker than the cliff notes summary of the book of kings with regard to these kings with a bias because I happen to know which things are relevant most to the book of Isaiah. Kings Uziah and Yotam were actually both very righteous. The only problem that the book of kings has with them is that they were righteous on a personal level but they would refuse to eliminate the shrines that were built for the sake of heaven. There were shrines all over the kingdom but you're not allowed to bring animal sacrifice outside of the temple once the temple stands. Temple was standing. So the fact that Israelites continued to bring sacrifices to God, they weren't worshiping idols. Some did, but that's not what I'm talking about here. These people were worshiping God. But if you want to worship God outside of the temple, you pray, you do other things. You don't bring animal sacrifices. They continued to do that, and they had been doing it for centuries. No king had the guts to eliminate them until Hezekiah. Because everybody understood, if we eliminate them, our citizens are going to hate our guts and think that it's sacrilegious. Even though it's following the Torah, it doesn't matter. It would arouse a lot of opposition. So Uziah and Yotam both were righteous, personally. But they, 
They did not eliminate the shrines. But something else happens in the book of Kings with regard to Uzziah. First of all, Uzziah is king for 52 whopping years, a brand new record in the history of Israel. And he has a northern, you know, there's a king of the northern kingdom because there's a divided monarchy. His name is Jeroboam also, but not the founder. It's Jeroboam II. It's much after the first Jeroboam from a different dynasty. He just has the same first name. So Jeroboam II, Yeravam ben Yoash, he was king for a whopping 41 years simultaneous to Uzziah's 52 years. A new record up there. Hmm, very interesting that you have two kings at the same time shattering the chronology record of the kingdom. Not only that, but both kings, north and south, got along well enough that they weren't fighting each other. And they were very militarily powerful and started defeating all of the surrounding region. And nobody was bothering them. That's great. And not only that, but they were able to restore the borders of Israel back to the way that they were in the time of King Solomon and David before him. So there's incredible longevity in the monarchy. There are military victories north and south. North and south get along. It sounds like an incredible time for the people of Israel. And the way the Bible describes it is Uzziahu's righteousness. And in the case of Yoravam, since he was wicked, of course, because all northern kings are wicked, as we discussed last time, God felt pity for this Jeroboam. They had no friends So God said, I have compassion on Israel. Let him win a few wars. In fact, the prophet Jonah is in that narrative telling him, go ahead, you'll do it. Right? That we know him of of whale fame. But he's actually in the narrative in Kings, encouraging Yeravam to go ahead and fight back and and, and defeat the enemies who had encroached on Israelite territory. What happens when you have political stability and you're conquering people is you become very rich. Because there's always spoils in battle. And so suddenly Israel became very, very wealthy again for the first time in a while. So wealthy that scholars refer to this era as the Silver Age of Israel. The Golden Age being of David and Solomon's time. We're now in the Silver Age. And what happens, of course, when there are wealthy people is, well, there are always the haves and the have-nots. Not everybody is going to be, not everybody is going to cash in. Some people will become wildly wealthy. Other people are suddenly in trouble. And that's the scene that shows up on the 8th century BCE, both in the north, where the prophet Amos becomes active and he takes them on, and down south, where we are, where the prophet Isaiah jumps into play. And if you were a historian, if I could just step out of my Tanakh boots for a second and step into a historian's boots. I'm not a historian, but I'm going to pretend to borrow a historian's boots. If you would ask a historian, why is Israel doing so well right now? It's not because God is rewarding them. It's not because God feels compassion on them. It's because of some guy named Adad-Nirari III. Adad-Nirari III has been helping Israel a lot, believe me, not because he wants to help Israel. He doesn't care about Israel at all right now. He's planning on conquering territories. Adad-Nirari III is the king of Assyria in 796 BCE, shortly before, 50 years or so before Isaiah becomes a prophet. Adad-Nirari III decides to attack Aram, which is modern-day Syria which was Israel's northern foe, which has been giving us a lot of headaches for over a century. So if Assyria is attacking the eastern front of Aram, and they're way more powerful than we'll ever be, well, Aram pulls its troops away from their western front to go protect it on the east. That's what you do, which means that Israel is home free. They're leaving us alone. So it's good for the Jews, at least today. Boy, oh boy, is this not good for the Jews in the long haul. But it's good for the Jews today. So the Jews say, hey, nobody's bothering us. Let's win back these minor territories that we had been losing over the centuries. And so they did. Yeah? Uh, if Aram is Syria, then where is Assyria? 
Uh, Syria is east of that. So it's, it's, it's like, you know, the Iran-Iraq zone. It's not, it's not Persia, it's not Babylonia, but it's next to Babylonia. So it's part of that, that, that neck of the woods. You know, east of Syria, Iraq. It's, it's, part of that, it's part of that conglomerate. The Syrians and Babylonians are part of that neck of the woods, yeah. How many years are we talking about before the 50-ish. When you said, you said Ezekiel was... Hezekiah was in 701. Was 52 years. No, Uziah. Uziah. The first of the four kings was Uziah king was for 52 years. And the other three? Well, hold on. So, so let me finish with... Well, hold on. Let me finish. Well, first of all, if Isaiah prophesied during his reign, he could have started in the first year of his reign or in the 52nd year of his reign, right? But, but wait, there's more. But I just wanted to give that little historical context because that's very relevant. Another thing that Uziah is famous for is that he was stricken with the skin disease called Sarad, which is always mistranslated as leprosy. That is a totally wrong translation. It's a wrong translation that has lasted for about a thousand years until somebody published an article in 1975 saying, I don't know what it is, but it can't be leprosy. And he's right, huh? It's probably a, a group of skin diseases. And so scholars can figure that out. What do I know about skin diseases? And I hope that I never have any of them. But Sarad is certainly, certainly not leprosy, what we call Hansen's disease. But anyway, so you can stop translating it that way. So he was stricken with Sarad. And when you're stricken with Sarad, you can't even live with the people anymore. He's still king. So his years are still tallying. But his son is running the country. His son, Yotam, has to run the country because Uziah can't be in the throne. He can't be anywhere. He has to be outside of the society. And he ended up, it seems, dying with his tzarat, which means he was out of commission for probably decades. Tough, tough, tough break for Uziah. So Yotam takes over during Uziah's lifetime. And he's likewise righteous, continues with the peace and prosperity. So Isaiah begins somewhere in this arena. In fact, Yotam seems, based on the current scholarly reconstruction, seems to have died slightly before Uziah, his father. Which means that Ahaz took the throne with Uziah still alive. And, and Ahaz still had to run the show, even though, again, Uziah is alive, albeit stricken with Sarat. And so Ahaz is the one wicked king of this era, of, of Isaiah's career. And he made the worst political blunder. You think sometimes Israeli governments make political blunders? All right, well, Ahaz made one of the worst political blunders, if not the worst political blunder in biblical history. What he did is he decided to save the kingdom. He did it for, for good political cause. The way that he was going to save the southern kingdom of Judah is by becoming a vassal of the mighty Assyrian Empire. Isaiah begged him. We'll get to that next week. Isaiah begged him, please, you, you really can't do this. This will be the end. Ahaz said, whatever. He didn't listen to the prophet. And he became a vassal and saved the kingdom. The Assyrians helped. It's just that then the Assyrians were in our neck of the woods, and then that led to terrible, terrible disaster shortly thereafter. So that's Ahaz's claim to infamy, as far as the book of Isaiah is concerned, that he was the one who chose to become a vassal to the Assyrians, and that led to very, very, very dire consequences. Ahaz's son, this is all southern. Yeah, yeah, we're, Isaiah is in the southern kingdom, he's prophesying to southern kings. He talks about the north periodically, but... but his, his area of, of activity is the, south, is the southern kingdom. Hezekiah is one of the most righteous kings ever. He's fantastic. You know, the apple fell very, very, very far from that tree. Ahaz is a disaster. Hezekiah is fantastic. Very, very faithful. As I mentioned before, he was able to eliminate and abolish the shrines that were people serving God. Another thing he got... He's the son of Ahaz. This is a father-son. You know, it's, it's four successive generations. During Hezekiah's lifetime, the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled. That's when the ten lost tribes became lost. 
so as of now, never to return, at least not as full tribal things. You have people like Michael Freund, who was in the class above me at Ramaz. He's trying to save the world and he's doing fantastic work with trying to bring back trying to bring back, you know, people who are identified, possibly identified as some of these lost tribes. Can you hear me with all the construction that's going on? So I'm, I'm, I'm belting it, but, but hopefully it's, it's, it's loud enough. But that all being said, the ten lost tribes became lost during Hezekiah's reign, and also, as I mentioned, in 701 BCE, let me just go for a little while, in 701 BCE, that's when Jerusalem was miraculously saved, where God intervened and the Assyrian siege broke and Jerusalem remained intact. But that means that in a 50-year period, by now Isaiah is a very old man, a 50-year-so year period, we don't know the exact dates, going back to David's point, we, we don't know. But it's ballpark, I would say, 40, 50 years of a prophetic career here. Isaiah went from looking at the country in its silver age. They were wealthy, they were powerful, there was political stability, there was general peace between north and south. Everything was looking great on the outside. The historians would say this was a terrific age. But Isaiah saw the inner decay. He saw that the people who became wildly wealthy thanks to the Silver Age had become very arrogant and had become used to oppressing poor Israelites, literally poor. They would sell them into slavery. Because what happens when you become nouveau riche and don't know how to manage your money is you run your credit card bills up very, very, very high. That was happening without the invention of credit cards in the 8th century BCE. They were running up their bills because they had to buy all these new luxuries. They had to get ivory decorations for their homes, all the fanciest stuff. And, well, you've got to pay for that, right? So what you do here is you sell your poor neighbors into slavery. And that's what they were doing. So Amos in the north and Isaiah in the south go ballistic. They say, you know, here we are. We think that we're God's chosen people. You think that we're, everything is, is home free. But there's a decay here. And if we don't clean up our act right now, those Assyrians, which right now have helped us by getting rid of the Aramean threat, they're going to come back for us. So Amos in the north and Isaiah in the south in the early parts of his career, that's their main message. Rabbi Benny Lau is a contemporary rabbi in Jerusalem. He published a book on Isaiah a couple years ago. He came up with, I thought, a very apt analogy. That Isaiah, imagine if you're the guy at the bottom of the Titanic who saw the iceberg hit and the hole. So you realize, whoa, we're in a heap of trouble. Whereas the guys up top were in first class... They're partying. They got all the luxury in the world. They don't have any cares at all. They're thrilled. They're happy. So I thought that was a good analogy, actually, of how Isaiah sees the world at the beginning of his career. He sees the hole. And he says, if we don't plug that hole right now, we're all going to sink. So that's Isaiah's nutshell career. That it was, so he went from Silver Age to exile of the Ten Lost Tribes to the near destruction of the south of the kingdom, leaving behind only Jerusalem and a completely shattered nation. So he died a failure like many of the other prophets. Right? By, the time he, by the time he died, not only had he not achieved his goals, but he watched everything collapse literally in his lifetime. So this brings us to the beginning of chapter 1 now, the very first prophecy. Source 5 we're up to. If you don't have sources, I'm sure we could still do something for you. Come on in. I even have sources for you. Okay. Source 5. Here's Isaiah's first prophecy to the people. He says, Your land is a waste. Your cities burnt down before your eyes. The yield of your soil is consumed by strangers. A wasteland is overthrown by strangers. Fair Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city beleaguered. Had not the Lord of hosts left us some survivors, we should be like Sodom, another Amorah. 
Very first prophecy in the book. When did Isaiah say this? This is probably the last prophecy he ever said. He's describing the land in ruins. He's not describing the land will be in ruins. He's saying everything is devastated except for Jerusalem. He's describing ruins. It's interesting that the editor of the, the prophetic editor of the book decided to put, I don't know if it's literally the last. There could have been other ones after, but it's certainly from the end of his career, as Radak already observed. I mean, even Rashi, who thinks that it is from the beginning of his career, Rashi says, okay, he's predicting the end of his career. We all know what he's describing. He's describing the destruction part. He's not describing any silver age. He's saying, look, we're in ruins here. But it seems like Radak is correct. That's specifically the very first prophecy that we read when we open the book. That's why you need to know the setting. It's actually the last part of the whole story. Isaiah is describing in misery, you hear the old prophet, who looks back on his 50-year-long efforts at trying to save his nation. And he sees it all just went up in flames. In his own lifetime, he watched the ten lost tribes, he watched Jerusalem almost fall. Yeah. Just just a quick question, because I have a lot to do. Yeah. This was a dynastic succession of kings you're saying. Yes. There's no question about that. For sure you're right. It's not unique to the people of Israel in 8th century BCE. But it's definitely happening here now. Absolutely. So what Isaiah is saying, by the way, Sodom, when when a prophet uses the term Sodom, what could he be referring to? How is he trying to make an analogy with Sodom? What is Sodom famous for? Two big things. Destruction and evil. Right? In other words, since Sodom was evil, therefore Sodom got destroyed. So the very first reference here to Sodom is about the destruction part. We're in ruins, he's yelling. You know, he's walking around in utter misery. The very next verse, which is in source 6, Hear the word of the Lord, you chieftains of Sodom. Give ear to our God's instruction, you folk of Amorah. What need have I of all your sacrifices, says the Lord. Okay, how is he using Sodom here? This is the evil part. This prophecy probably is Isaiah's first prophecy, or at least very, very, very close. What the book has done, it's created this loop, which is a 39-chapter long loop. We have to talk about some of the other chapters so you can just see it. It's amazing, actually. Where the very first opening prophecy mentions Sodom, and it's talking about here's the old prophet describing the current state of ruin at the end of his life. But now we hear the young and idealistic prophet barging in on this silver age. Now we're in silver age mode. This is the beginning of his career from the time of Uzziah and Yotam, where he troops around saying, who needs these sacrifices? I am sated with burnt offerings of rams and suet of fatlings and blood of bulls. I have no delight in lambs and he goats. Wash yourself clean. Put your evil doings away from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Devote yourselves to justice. Aid the wronged. Uphold the rights of the orphan. Defend the cause of the widow. If you read the middle verses that I dot, dot, dotted out, you'd see very clear. God loves sacrifices. He's all pro them. Ask any prophet, they would agree. God hates sacrifices if they're used as a bribe. He despises them. That's what pagans used sacrifices for. Pagans, the system was, their gods actually were carnivores. And so it was a barter system. You give the gods your meat, and they're going to give you rain or victory of war or whatever, depends on which god you're giving the meat to. And they'll come through for you. And if they don't, then you go over their heads, and that's what magic is. Okay, that's the pagan system in a nutshell. Our system is, 
Animal sacrifice was part of a program of getting close to God, but it obviously included holy behavior, which included, most importantly, the pinnacle of ethical behavior. What God can't stand, as Isaiah says in the south and Amos is saying in the north, screaming during the Silver Ages, hey guys, if we're evil, it doesn't matter. God doesn't need meat. Our God doesn't eat, right? If you bring sacrifices, it's a sacrilege if you're murdering and oppressing widows and selling fellow Israelites into slavery. It's a sacrilege to bring the sacrifice because it shows that you're treating God as one who could be bribed. So here Isaiah sets out his program, which is, as long as we're being immoral as a consequence of this silver age, God doesn't want any of our worship. It doesn't matter. In this passage, it's clear. The Israelites were keeping Shabbat, Rosh Chodesh. They were doing Berkat Kohanim. They were doing the priestly blessing. They were doing all kinds of observances in the temple, but they were very wicked people. So then comes source number seven. This is all just chapter one. Chapter one really sets the tone for the book. Come, let us reach an understanding, says the Lord. Be your sins like crimson, they can turn snow white. Be they red as dyed wool, they can become like fleece. In other words, if you repent, even though you're very, very red now, repentance serves as bleach. Right? Repentance can get that sin right on out of your system and will go right back to the purity of whiteness. Assuredly, this is the declaration of the Sovereign, Lord of hosts, Mighty One of Israel. Ah, I will get satisfaction from my foes. I will wreak vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and smelt out your dross as with lye and remove all of your slag. Okay, here's how how is God going to get rid of wicked here in this part two? Fire. Right? What God is actually doing is giving a plan A and a plan B. God's plan is we're going to have a perfect nation of Israel somehow. Plan A, everybody can just repent. That's smooth. Get rid of the red, move to the white, everything is pure, and then we're as good as new. If that doesn't happen, there's going to have to be a fire. And Israel is compared to a pot. There's a common prophetic imagery. Pot of silver, where you turn up the heat quite a bit, and all the impurities, the dross, flows to the top. God will have to skim that off. And what's left is the pure silver. So that's the plan A and the plan B. Here's one of only three calls for repentance in all of chapters 1 through 39. There's one in chapter 1, there's one in chapter 2, and there's sort of one in chapter 3. And that's it. In the early parts of of his career, Isaiah calls for repentance, as any prophet would. There's still a chance, there's still hope that we could reverse this doom that's looming off in the horizon. So at this point, if you're a prophet, you understand those Assyrians are really dangerous. The Israelites don't understand that at all yet. They will, once the Assyrians start marching westward toward Israel, they'll begin to realize, then you won't need to be a prophet anymore. But by then, it will be too late. So Amos in the north and Isaiah in the south are trying very, very hard to fix Israel's problems while they can. The ideal being repentance, of course, plan B being the filtering out of the wicked through this, this refining process. Interspersed with all of these prophecies of prediction of, uh, not prediction, call for repentance or prediction of this fire is stuff like source number eight, one of the most celebrated prophecies in the whole book. In the days to come, the mount of the Lord's house shall stand firm above the mountains and tower above the hills, and all the nations shall gaze on it with joy. And the many people shall go and say, come, let us go up to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For instruction shall come forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There will come a point, says Isaiah, that Jerusalem will become that ideal city of God, where all nations of the world will say they're really living 
right. They're living good lives. They're righteous people. We want to be like they are. And they'll come flooding from all over the place to serve God in the temple. And once they do that, they'll learn from us as good role models. And that, of course, will immediately bring world harmony. Thus he will judge among the nations and arbitrate for the many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not take up sword against nation. They shall never again know war. Because, of course, if the fear of God spreads to the entire world, that's it. We're finally home free. Isaiah, by the way, and then we'll get to you, Sandra. This is just the, this is the, as a, as a New Yorker, of course, I appreciate this particular United vision. Nations, United, Nations. United Nations quotes these verses, and God, I, and I'm sure we all pray that one day they'll actually do things that will help achieve these goals. They could, but, but, but we will hope and, we hope and pray for such things. Yeah, I'm aware that it's on the wall. Yeah? Um, how many people, if we know, did Isaiah reach? mentioned the marketplace. So did he just stand in the marketplace and yell and scream? And only the people who were there on Tuesdays and Thursdays or whatever heard him? Or was his word um, heard in the halls of the palace of the king? And was he a thorn in their side? And if so, why didn't they just, like Ahav tried to do with, you know, with Elijah? I mean, why didn't he, they just try to silence him? So, number one, how large was his audience? I mean, he lasted 50, 40, 50 years, so Either he had a good getaway or somebody hid him or nobody really cared to listen. Or three out of the four kings were righteous. Right, right. (laughs) Right? He actually had it good as these things go. But since there were evil people and that was the reason that he was talking about the the underbelly, there were were factions there that theoretically would have wanted to shut him up. So I'm just wondering politically, how did it work? We don't know. Jeremiah, we get a chronicle of some people really tried to harm him. We don't get that sense here. He's able to speak speak his heart's content. Again, what happened to him, I don't know. But there's certainly no saga like what you get in the book of Jeremiah where you really feel his pain yes. As, yes. as people persecute him for that. So here, Isaiah, getting back to the city boy point. So Isaiah's vision of how do you bring a utopian era, the answer is you do it through a city. If you can make a perfect city and turn that into a metropolitan center of religiosity, that's how you bring the messianic era. If you want a different vision of somebody who wasn't a city person. So the prophet Svanya, Zephaniah, we'll talk about him when we get to him. He's one of the so-called 12 prophets. Uh, he thought cities are inherently evil, and they just have to go. <coughs> cities create arrogance and anti-godliness, and they just have to go, and we all need to become shepherds. So his utopian vision is the cities are going to vanish, and everybody's going to watch them sheep. Okay. So that's an alternative vision to, and our cities certainly present, I don't need to tell you this, a religious challenge. Because they're so far removed from God. If you're a farmer, boy oh boy, every rainfall is, you know, for us it's a nuisance. You get, you get your shoes wet on the corner and then a bus splashes you. Mm-hmm. For a farmer, it's life and death. right? So you at least appreciate God's role in the world much more directly. And Tanakh is very conscious of this issue, the difference between farmers and city slickers. But Isaiah certainly speaks as a city slicker, that he believes the way that messianic utopia can come is through a metropolitan center that's living a good religious life. So that all being said, we see some threats in the earlier chapters. We see some messianic visions like this one and a couple of others. By and large, this is all happening during the Silver Age. All of these are the early prophecies. One thing finally changes as we start marching ahead, and that's in source number 9 here. The great commentator of the 19th century, Shadal, or Shmuel David Luzzato, who was an Italian rabbi, he really nailed this one. Because he's just watching the flow of the book, where the three calls for repentance are in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then there are no more. 
So he's sensitive to that little fact. And then he also notices source 9 over here, and he says this is the key to it all. Ah, those who haul with sin with cords of falsehood and iniquity with, as with cart ropes, who say, let him speed, let him hasten his purpose. In other words, they're saying, oh yeah, Isaiah, if doom is coming, come on, let's see some doom. Come on, tough guy. And they start being sarcastic toward him. Being sarcastic to a prophet is very different from ignoring a prophet. If you ignore the prophet, that's the wrong thing to do. But maybe tomorrow you'll change your mind and listen when he comes back to the marketplace. Right? But if you're sarcastic, that means you're never going to listen. And this is the moment, says Shadal, where we've crossed the point of no return. Once the people sever their tie with the prophet and they no longer see him as a legitimate source of the word of God, well then, Isaiah could talk till he's blue in the face, they're never going to listen. So Shadal argues, while David Lutzato argues, this is where the decree is now being sealed. Where suddenly the Israelites are crossing a point of no return. Verse 19, who say, let him speed, let him hasten his purpose. If we are to give thought, let the plans of the Holy One of Israel be quickly fulfilled if we are to give heed. Okay, let's see some Assyrians and then we'll, then we'll listen. That is why the Lord's anger was roused against his people, why he stretched out his arm against it and struck it, so that the mountains quaked and its corpses lay like refuse in the streets. Yet his anger is not turned back. His arm is outstretched still. He will raise an ensign to a nation afar, a whistle to one at the end of the earth. There it comes with lightning speed, and here come the Assyrians. And this brings us to our timeline. In 745 BCE, something very important happened, and that is a guy named Tiglat-Pileser III took over in Assyria. He became the king of Assyria. And he thought, you know, it's nice to be a king, but it would be so much better to just be a full-blown emperor. I think I need to conquer the world. And not only that, but... The Assyrians controlled territories before, but their usual policy was they stayed in Assyria and they would tax you. And if you gave them trouble, they'd send the army. Tiglath-Pileser was the first of six consecutive Assyrian emperors to say, you know what, we're going to bring Assyria to you. And they brought not only armies, but they brought a whole propaganda machine. Their theology was, it's a really interesting theology, their god's name was Ashur, like, like the country is called Ashur. And they believed... Since Ashur, their god, is the most powerful one, well, he's going to help them win all the wars. And we glorify him by winning all the wars. And so their theology was, Ashur never loses. And their military machine, until Jerusalem showed up 44 years from now, they actually proved their point. They, really just, they were really good warriors. In fact, their whole culture, their art, their literature, everything was war. They were single-minded to this task. And they were very, very, very good at it. And everybody else quickly found out. That was in 745. So Tiglath-Pileser begins rolling out the Assyrian power in all directions, going toward Babylonia to his east, and toward Aram, this time for real, and closer and closer to the land of Israel to his west. In 742, the righteous king Yotam died. The king of Judah, Yotam, the son of Uziah, died according to our current chronologies. Uziah is still alive, his father, but he's, already, he's still stricken with Sarad and still out of the picture. And that's when the wicked grandson, Ahaz, takes the throne. In 736, the righteous Uziah finally dies after 52 years as king, albeit not always on the throne. One of those quirky things that you have to know, right? After 52 years, he dies. And finally, Ahaz is the sole king on the throne in 736. 
And in 734 is when he's going to have to make the most fateful political decision ever in Israel's history. It's really a tremendous decision that he will have to make. So we'll do 734 next week. That's chapter 7. Here we have to look at chapter 6, which is a very celebrated prophecy indeed, and rightly so. That is the year that King Uzziah died, which is 736 BCE. So here we are in source 10. In the year 736... In the year that King Uzziah died, I beheld my Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the skirts of his, Lord, of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs stood in attendance of him. These are a class of angel. Each of them had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his legs, with two he would fly. And one would call to the other, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, his presence fills all the earth. Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzvaot, Melo Kol Haaretz Kivodeo. Right? We say that in the Kedushah every single time we say the Amidah. It comes from this passage. The doorpost would shake at the sound of the one who called, and the house kept filling with smoke. I cried, Woe is me, I am lost! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a a people of unclean lips. Yet my own eyes have beheld the King Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphs flew over to me with a live coal, which he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched it to my lips and declared, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt shall depart, and your sin be purged away. So the first thing you have to realize, this is actually very important, even though Yom Kippur is nowhere near here, which proves that I'm just functioning as a teacher rather than as a rabbi. If Yom Kippur were coming around, oh boy, I'd save it, so I could use it, right? But in the meantime, (coughs) our Yom Kippur is this vision if I had to summarize it all. Isaiah, in his vision, is standing in the Holy of Holies. He's in the heavenly host. He's standing in the angelic host, God surrounded by the angelic host. In our world, that would be the high priest standing in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was entered once per year by the high priest for just a couple of moments. And that represents God's throne room. But of course, he wouldn't see living God and living angels because this is a visionary experience. He would see no God because can't see God. And you would see the Kruvim. You would see the golden images that are on top of the ark. That's our passion. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're right here right now. It's, it's fantastic. So what Isaiah is doing is going through the Yom Kippur process. And what he does is you understand what, what, this is what we're supposed to go through on Yom Kippur. The first thing you're supposed to feel, that's what we do by becoming like angels on Yom Kippur. We're fasting. We can't engage in any physical activity. We can't wear leather shoes, which for the rabbis were a sign of our humanity. That's what Yom Kippur is. We stop for 25 hours. We're entering the Holy of Holies. And the first thing that we should do upon entry to the Holy of Holies is realize we really don't belong here. We are so unworthy. And that's the whole system of guilt that we're supposed to feel on Yom Kippur. The whole idea is that we're standing literally in God's presence. We don't belong here. Isaiah feels completely overwhelmed. What am I doing here? I'm on unclean lips. I'm a human being. I don't belong with the angelic host. And as soon as you're able to do that, if you're able to do that, that's what happens next. The angel touches the coal to his lips and he's purified. The Hebrew is That's Yom Kippur. The point is that if you are able to feel unworthy while in God's presence, that's what purifies you. And so that's the Yom Kippur side of it, which is again modeled after this vision to a great extent. Many, many PUTM on Yom Kippur just draw from this because they understand very, very, very well that's what's going on over here. So it's an exalted vision in its own right. But you have to remember... On Yom Kippur, we're just dealing with the exalted vision part. In our context, well, this is in the middle of the book. It's, it's not just how, you know, some of the great prophetic experiences ever. This isn't that collection, even though this is one of the exalted prophetic experiences. 
Well, now that Isaiah is purified and he's standing with the other angels, now you can appreciate verse 8. Because God is going to say, okay, angels, I need a volunteer. But now Isaiah is a legitimate candidate to volunteer. Now, once he belongs, once he goes through this purifying process, he can can be part of this. So that's verse 8. Then I heard the voice of my Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? You know, God is saying to the angelic host, I need a volunteer. And Isaiah says, I'll go. I said, here I am, send me. It's a beautiful moment where Isaiah is so worked up. He feels he's in the moment. God calls for a volunteer. Isaiah understands that he's been purified. He volunteers. And here's a tip. Don't volunteer for something until you know what the mission is, right? And he said, God said, right in verse 9, Go say to that people, hear indeed, but do not understand. See indeed, but do not grasp. Dull that people's mind. Stop its ears and seal its eyes. Isaiah, your mission is to make sure that they don't repent. Amazing. God doesn't usually order prophets that, to do that. It's usually kind of the opposite, right? So the last bunch of chapters, for several years, possibly decades, Isaiah's been calling on the people to repent, because that's what prophets always do. And here, in this exalted throne room vision, surrounded by the angelic host, Isaiah has, has volunteered, God tells him, your mission is to absolutely make sure that the people don't repent because I want to clobber them, says God. And if they repent, I'll, I, I'm stuck. I'm in a tough spot. I have to make sure that they remain wicked. So your job is to stop up their eyes and ears, right? Lest, seeing with its eyes and hearing with its ears, it also grasp with its mind and repent and save itself. God doesn't want them to save themselves. This is what we call the sealing of a decree. A divine sealing of a decree. Divine sealing of a decree is very scary stuff. And our commentators struggle with, what exactly is that supposed to mean? Like, let's say they go ahead and repent. Is God going to say, too bad? So that's a good question. Something that we'll leave, you know, we'll leave for God to figure out. But no prophet ever takes sealed decrees sitting down. We discussed last week even with the King Josiah. He heard about, the king, about God's decree and he says, you know what? God's decree or not, I'm going to get the whole nation to repent right now. All right, so let me just go for a little bit. I have to make sure to cover what I need to cover. And then if there's time at the end, we'll definitely do more questions. Yeah, that's the mission. The mission is the decree is sealed. The people have mocked the prophet. God has been calling for repentance for too long. And God is now saying it's too late. Rambam actually understands this and invokes this when he's talking about hardening Paro's heart. He invokes these verses also. Right? Rambam believes... That God actually can step in there and manipulate your heart to do the wrong thing if you already deserve punishment. Right? So in this, like Paro, Paro already, he was a wicked man long before the ten plagues. So God wants to give him the plagues. That's the way it goes. So God makes sure that he doesn't say, okay, sure, you can go, because that would ruin everything. Okay, so that's how Rambam understands it. And he understands that's what's happening here. That the people of Israel are so past the point of no return that... It's too bad. God wants to punish them, and therefore he will make sure that they don't repent. Another way of thinking about this, of course, is this is a very stark decree. I I like to think of it as, and this goes back to something that Sandra asked before, how many people did Isaiah reach? So the answer is probably many, and he certainly reached kings. He spoke to kings, and we're going to get to that next week. He certainly had a lot of influence, or at least an audience of people who might be able to influence. That's for sure. But he also wrote scrolls. Right? That's how you get, that's how you reach more people, by disseminating. Yeah, it's me against a very loud house. He wrote scrolls. You know, he wrote these things down and they were disseminated, which means that you could reach a much greater audience. So, 
I picture that this vision has a two-pronged process. There's what it means when Isaiah is standing before God, and there's what it means when he actually conveys this to his audience. When he's standing before God, God is saying, it's over. The decree is sealed. And when Isaiah goes out to the streets the next day to tell the people what he saw and what he heard, he's trying to get them to repent. He's hoping that this will scare them so badly that maybe they'll still turn around. He's not doing it to say, you guys are done, you might as well keep doing whatever you're doing, go ahead and despair, right? Party, party till you die, be on the Titanic, the top floor, it's like, go ahead. No, Isaiah's going to try to save everything when he walks out of this vision. He's not giving up, prophets don't give up, ever. Right? Even long after Isaiah's death, he's still trying to bring about his, his ideal vision, and God willing, one day will help him out. But in the meantime, that's what, that's what he's actually going to do. But God is proclaiming a sealed decree, and Isaiah realizes, whoa, it's quite a mission there. Verse 11, I asked, how long, my Lord? And he replied, till the towns lay waste, lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people. And the ground lays waste and desolate. For the Lord will banish the population, and deserted sites are many in the midst of the land. But while a, t- a tenth part yet remains in it, it shall repent. It shall be ravaged like the terebinth and the oak of which stumps are left even when they are felled, and its stump shall be a holy seed. God says, doom is coming, one-tenth of the population, which is a way of saying serious damage incoming. But that, that stump, even though the tree has been cut down, it's going to be a very righteous stump, and it will flourish yet again. What God is saying is that we're going to suffer a major consequence right now, but the, what survives is going to build up this ideal, fabulous Society. So that's what Isaiah's throne room vision is really all about. You have the exalted part, which is what we highlight on Yom Kippur. We don't pay attention to the second half, right? It's not about the contextual prophecy, but what we need to understand is that the Silver Age was a disaster from God's point of view and from Isaiah's point of view. God is now proclaiming a decree, and Isaiah is not going to take the sitting down. He's going to go out there and very urgently try to save everybody, because that's what he needs to be able to do. And that's what next week is going to be about as we march into chapter 7 and beyond. So I look forward to doing more of Isaiah with you then. Thank you so much. Again, I apologize for the photocopies, but I think, I think it worked out. Thank you. Thank you.